no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. I feel like every time we've started this podcast this summer, I am introducing that you are back from somewhere. Yes. That's because every time that we're done with the podcast, I think that that's a good excuse to go somewhere. <laughs> and, and not anywhere good. No good comes of it. It's just, uh, in fact, I think I, actually, if I sound just a touch congested, I think I may have picked up a cold from one of the hundreds of people I was just around. So... Curses on them. <laughs> and you were inside the beltway. I hear nothing happens there anymore, Nothing right? happens, right. It was uh, at a standstill. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. for the uh, AEJMC conference. I'm sure everybody – no, I should probably say what that is. The Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication, which is an annual conference that brings together people from across the nation and around the world to talk about issues in journalism and mass media education. And I've been going to it for a long time. It's actually a very interesting conference, and where it is sometimes uh, has benefits and sometimes not. <laughs> sort sure. of Like if it's in Chicago, one of the main benefits for me is I get to see my family. Right. Uh, but this was in Washington, D.C., and what it did give me the opportunity to do was to go to the National Portrait Gallery, which if you've never been – and anybody listening, if you've never been to the National Portrait Gallery, you should go because, number one, it's a really stunning place. The The National Portrait Gallery is grafted onto the Smithsonian Museum of Art, so they're right there next to each other. And the Smithsonian Museum of Art has an, a phenomenal uh, contemporary art yeah. exhibit. Um, that that was definitely worth the trouble, and you know the, uh, the of course the big draw right now is the Obama portrait, right? Which we talked about a long time ago, right. and it's like uh, an early episode of ours. It was, yeah, and I finally got to stand in front of it and have my picture after all of those after months. all of those months. <laughs> and uh, actually, there is a Kahindi Wiley, the artist who did it. There's a a, a bigger uh, canvas of his also in the museum of LL Cool J. I, that's the first one I ever saw. <laughs> that was the first time I'd ever seen um, in any of his work. Uh-huh. And I took a picture of it that day. I was just blown away by it. Yeah, it's it's, story. it's completely phenomenal. Um, and another one of my favorite uh, artists um, who's an African-American who uh, does a lot of depicting of uh, American themes, Kerry James Marshall. There's also a painting of his there. Uh, it's not my favorite of his, but it's 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 really good. And his practice, uh, for lots of different reasons, is to actually paint African Americans as like black. Like hmm. he's did some experimental early work where all you kind of see are eyes and a mouth. And it's just like really powerful stuff. But anyway, yeah, so the Obama portrait and, and of course, Michelle Obama's portrait. Um, and as you're looking at Michelle Obama's portrait, you kind of feel like somebody is looking at you to mm. the left because directly to the, the That's left. That's the security, Ralph. The, no. <laughs> no, it's better than that. It was actually a, uh, a portrait that was done of Toni Morrison. And it's the most realistic looking painted portrait of a person um, I think I've I've ever seen. Huh. And she has this penetrating stare with the eyes that follow you around the room. So, <laughs> or like creep out the, your, your your neck hairs as you're watching yeah. the Michelle Obama picture. Well, tell me, how did did 
DC color the conversation that was happening at AEJMC? Well, I mean, one of the things that happens is that the uh, the attempt for the conference, wherever it is, to try to tie into the local community. Sure. Um, so, for example, um, one of the things that um, happened there was there was a, uh, a conference. Uh, well, there was a, a panel that was sort of the keynote con- at the conference, uh, which was held on the opening night, which was people who have covered the White House and how they did it um, from a couple of different generations. Um, and, the, yeah, the name of the panel was covering the White House from Eisenhower to Trump, and it included John Cochran, who's retired now, but was the former chief Capitol Hill correspondent for ABC News and chief NBC White House correspondent, and then also Christy Parsons, former White House correspondent, Tribune Company, and senior editor at The Atlantic. No, actually, that – I think they – yeah, no, that's right. And then Kristen Welker, who's a White House correspondent for NBC News. Um, so, uh, so there were some people with some, you know, pretty mad skills and, Mm -hmm. and they talked about the different practices that are involved. It's very complicated and the amount of, the number of people that are involved in covering the White House has grown considerably over time. John Cochran told a story of, of, um, Tom Brokaw reaching out because Tom Brokaw was the only one covering the White House for NBC and reached out to John Cochran and said, you should come and cover the White House with me because there's cool stuff happening. And this was, I think, during the Kennedy administration. Hmm. Um, And they've, of course, grown. Um, In fact, uh, Kristen Welker was talking about how now they have basically people whose beats are the individual components of covering the White House. So there's somebody covering the Mueller investigation. There's somebody covering the, uh, the, the, the Russian stuff otherwise. They have a series of people who are involved in it. And she says that they're just busy all the time yeah. <laughs> because there's so much going on with all of these. So it was a really interesting thing. And I was going to mention for the sake of people who might be interested that it's worth uh, um, going to the, 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 the channel that you – it's one of the ones you flip past called C-SPAN. Have you heard of C-SPAN? It's that channel mm, that you yeah. don't watch, right? right. <laughs> well, and actually, sometimes, in fact, it made news this past week because there was a call in where somebody was um, actually threatening to, I think, assassinate someone. Thanks. And it was, yeah, it was just sort of like flew by. And the person who was hosting, you know how they do those call in things on C SPAN, uh, didn't exactly catch what was going on. But in any event, so there were several of these uh, events, including this panel that I was just describing, where if you go to C SPAN and if you search under covering the White House, you'll see it there. It uh, happened on August 6th, and uh, it, it's interesting. I think they only actually uploaded the first um, 40 minutes. I'm, I'm checking the time. Oh, no, they have uh, they have more of it up now, so they must have put the whole thing up. Um, so anyway, it's an interesting thing to look at to get an idea of what the discussion was about. And you, yeah. So you mentioned that there are so many people because there's so much to cover now, and I wonder if that's a product of just a lot's going on or just the fact that covering the White House has become essentially the the thing that everyone wants to follow, right? It, it's it's the, the top of the hour news at every um, 6 o'clock uh, broadcast and so everything seems to be centered around the White House and I wonder how it's grown if it's because of market demand or if it truly is a product of uh, just more you know more things to cover right well there's that there one effect that you hear from people who are in the media is that you know, they might, um, although they try to remain objective about it, they don't necessarily think that everything that comes out of the White House is necessarily good for sure. people or whatever, particularly when the White House decides to not tell the truth about things, which happens, oh, I don't know, like 
three or four thousand times, um, but uh, but they have to cover it, and so and and so, but they're caught in this really strange trap because it's really otherwise good for them. I mean, the the fact because people are very interested in it now. Right. The question becomes: Is what they're interested in actually just the worst form of clickbait? Right. Right. They're sort of like the. Is it good uh, for us? Yeah. That we're yeah. that we're interested in that. That we're interested. That we pay attention. That we actually amplify and reproduce half truths and and um, uh, emotional outbursts on Twitter and all those sorts of things. That um, you know what part they play in public policy is still kind of a really complicated question. And there's such a breathlessness to the coverage because of the number of people involved. In the number of things happening, that there's very little of, I think, a very reflective, you yeah. know, kind of moment. I've also wondered about what's the what's the feeling of anxiety when you're about to release a piece, when it's about to drop at 5 p.m., uh, and you know this is going to take be major news, but you also know that because of the way social media works, you and your literal personal account are going to take, you know, heat f- from whatever the opposite side is, yeah. from what whatever is assumed the side that you're on. Right, yeah. Yeah, and no, I, mean, I think there's still, there's certainly a lot about that that I think people are pretty universally unhappy with. I don't think people really like, I mean, there's some people who, you know, the trollers and, and things like that who I think, you know, go looking for those opportunities to just sort of like beat up on people and it certainly happens frequently. But um, but I think the majority of the people who are participating in this, this kind of social media politics interface don't really think that that's very helpful. There's certainly a lot of criticism going on now about, well, what is it that's causing our discussions about this and the culture to just get like more and more antagonistic, um, less and less substantial, you know, those sorts of things. So, you know, some of what you may consume or that I'm like, is there anything that strikes you as like, where do you, where do you find the best analysis in terms of when you're looking at, at media, do you go to traditional media outlets or do you go to something more contemporary? Well, that's a good question. I find myself, and I, maybe I've talked about this before, I often want to see how every, rather than just looking for the best source, I'm wanting to understand how every source is, is following it. Mm-hmm. So usually my workflow goes, um, I will read the New York Times piece, followed mm-hmm. by the CNN piece, followed by the Fox News piece, because I, I want to get like a full understanding of what are the different perspectives that are being covered in it. And, it, and I mean, it kind of blows my mind how almost... Um, predictable it is just to hear how you know one one specific uh outlet's going to spin it versus another mm-hmm. um, but that's usually my, my my workflow for how i i work through it mm-hmm. um and i like i've i've said this before too but i subscribe to a daily newsletter from uh the columbia journalism review uh-huh. uh it does a, a, a fairly good job of compiling a bunch of things that are that are you know covering one specific subject and and try to try to catch it that way mm-hmm. so just for breaking news that's sort of my you know my my way that I go about it. Okay. So what about it, you? It you know yeah it, it's I, my patterns are all disrupted right now yeah. because there's such a bombardment going on and um, although I'm very conscious of being inside of bubbles and things like that, um, I think one of the things that's become interesting is the relationship between traditional news providers and then the sort of newer upstart you know right. uh, online news providers that can sometimes be very much more agile in terms of responding to things. Um, and then there's, and, and there's such a variety of them now. And it's, a, so what I'm, what I'm looking for though, usually what I, what I desperately would wish I had more time to find and, and it are 
people who are doing more in-depth, careful, thoughtful right. uh, uh, pieces. I was reading a piece this morning. There's a, a colleague who teaches here at the University of Oklahoma. His name is Mitchell Smith. And uh, he did a piece on his blog that was an excellent piece about distortions in the employment figures. And basically what he was talking about was how there was a particular spin that was put on the employment figure. But, you know, his basic argument was that there's an employment trend that started basically at the beginning of the Obama administration and continued on. And what's happening now is the continuation of that. The actual job numbers are down a little bit in terms of what's being created from month to month. But it's basically continuing. You look at the curve and it's basically it goes, you know, the unemployment rate is dropping during the Obama administration and then it begins to level out a little bit when it kind of hits the, the, the point where it really can't get a whole lot lower. But what his what he's discussing in this that I think is really interesting and worth paying attention to is the way that people – you know, we're suggesting during the Obama administration that the employment numbers were being, you know, were, were being fudged and there was something unethical going on and it was a lie and shouldn't be trusted or anything like that. Then, of course, so the curve is continuing in the same way. Um, the, the election of Trump happens. The curve is just continuing the way that it was. And but the story's better right now. Mm-hmm. Now the numbers are reliable. Right. Um, so and, and that, you know, I mean, that's kind of so he tracks this and traces it kind of through the manipulations that are going on of how people are spinning it. And the spin is really complex. And that's, you know, so what I so which is all to say what I look for when I'm looking around in the media is things that are able to do that kind of explanation that will give me an idea of. Not just how the what the uh, whatever the set of facts are, how they're being told, and how they're how people are trying to push it to create a case one way or the other. And it's it's hard to do that. It's hard to read. It's hard to find really good stuff. Is there a that. specific journalist that, no matter you know, you'll read everything that they put out? Do you follow any specific people? There's a couple people who's right. Like I, uh, I, I think Frank Rich. Mm-hmm. Um, who um, is, I think he's still writing for New York Magazine. He's just a great writer, you know, and that's that's something that has kind of its own pleasures is somebody who can explain really complicated things um, in in ways that aren't, I think the 538, yeah. um, I don't, do you read there? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They're very comprehensible very, and, and this kind of interesting look at, you know, um, um, how things working out from based on numbers. So there's, I think they have a daily posting of something like the numbers you need to recognize for today. Um, so I think really like well-written stuff like that um, is important to find. Is there anybody that you read like that? Um, I wouldn't say at the moment. I try to, I mean, I think Maggie Haberman's probably um, the White House correspondent that people follow the closest. And I try to read what she puts out um, simply because she's, you know, she seems to have a, a really good ear to the ground of what's ha- happening. Um, I I tend to um, read Ezra Klein at Vox, mm-hmm. who I tend to enjoy um, what he puts out as well. Mm-hmm. He tends to have a, 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 a an interesting uh, long term perspective of this as well, um, particularly as it relates to like economics. So mm-hmm. I like uh, I like Ezra Klein as well. But that's yeah. Go I, I, I don't know if I if I call I I might be cautious to call him a journalist and call him more of a pundit at at this point. But um um. 
But yeah, that's yeah. Well, the one other person I met at this um, AEJMC conference that I was at in Washington, D.C. was the, the division that I'm involved with is called the Cultural and Critical Studies Division. And there is an award that's given out. One of the divisions of the organization is called the Professional Freedom and Responsibility uh, there's an award that's given that's been given for 40 years by the division, and the person who received it this year was Leonard Pitts. Hmm. And Leonard Pitts is a, somebody else that I'd mentioned is somebody who writes some of the clearest prose and does some of the best commentary. Um, and I got a chance to meet him and talk to him a little bit. He's a phenomenal human being. He's a, a, a really nice guy, but also just a really gifted writer. And so it was really kind of a pleasure to talk to him. His material appears mostly in the Miami Herald. Um and, but he's, you know, just again, it's, and, and for me, it's just always, I always try to tell students, you know, find somebody, it doesn't matter whether you agree with them or not, but somebody whose writing is is just impressive to you. It's lucid. It makes you, like, think really hard. George Orwell is somebody who mm-hmm. sort of like, if you want a good starting point, you know, George Orwell is always a good person to start from. And, and most people have, of course, dealt with his fiction, but not as many have dealt with his essays. And, you know, he's a, he's such an amazingly clear writer. Um, yeah, John Steinbeck's always been that for mm-hmm. me. Yeah, someone who I always always go back to. But I think that I think that's helpful to to lay out also for listeners. You know, if you're because it, it's so hard to figure out, um, particularly in this day and age, you know who who to read and what to read, and 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 also you know make sure that you're being critical of of, of what you're consuming as well, and mm-hmm. and reconsidering the type of media that you're. That you are consuming. So. I think, yeah, also cross-referencing it to who you listen to. Yeah. So, you know, again, just in terms of clarity, um, uh, uh, may, may he rest in peace, Anthony Bourdain yeah. was an amazingly clear thinker about what he did. And listening to his, you know, what essentially is his verbal prose was really kind of an amazing thing, too. Um, so, you know, there are those, those people who um, just are, are able to communicate uh, amazing clarity and, and use the language in ways that are very powerful. And that I think, you know, and I think exposing yourself to that makes you, and I won't claim this for myself, but I think it makes you a clearer thinker and a better user of language because you can incorporate the way that they think about things into the way you think about things. Again, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, um, my it, I, I was watching, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, there's a documentary that's about um, the, the verbal battles that went on between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, hmm. starting at the 1968 uh, convention, and um, they became a regular feature because it was very tumultuous, of course, because of what was going on. But the two of them really got into it and went after each other. And they're, they're both, again, very, very clear writers from completely – it was kind of funny because their writing is much clearer than – and this was sort of like the cutting edge of TV punditry, right? It was just kind of becoming something in uh, 1968, 1972 when they were covering these things. And and they were – they you know, this is kind of like the sharp wit – where they were trying to undermine each other's arguments. And, uh, you know, again, kind of listening to and watching that. And so the documentary, um, which is, I'll have to to dig up the name. We'll put the link to it on on the notes. But uh, it's an amazing thing to watch this kind of like new form that eventually becomes what we see now, which is this kind of, you know, this kind of punditry. You know, sadly, I think it would be a lot harder for somebody like Vidal or Buckley to be the same kind of television person. And because they're just not as uh, kind of predictably boisterous and gonna, just going to do their five minutes on a on a panel or something like that. So, 
Um, but it's interesting to see as media changes how the use of people like that becomes, you know, um, an interesting changing thing too. Anything else from AEJMC? <laughs> Um, stick out no it was just kind of there's a couple other things on c-span that again if if uh if if people are interested i think they're worth paying attention to there was um there was a panel on offensive speech in the first amendment that uh, a couple people i know were on uh that's that's worth checking out that happened on august 8th there's also reporting in a hostile political environment that happened on august 9th and this is kind of when the conference was um and then uh so so there were a lot of these things supreme court coverage in the digital age um, because of course a lot of what we're dealing with in the as educators is what's the effect of the digital on what we do how do you, how does the fact that there's so much instantaneous communication affect how we make sense out of the world what do we do when we're faced with uh, audiences of students and young people who get most of their information from some combination of Facebook and Twitter and and uh, and all of this is having a really strange effect on, on news production. And that's, you know, ultimately what we need to worry about is how is this stuff going to be paid for in the future? How is this going to work? Um, so, that, so you know, that's kind of something that's certainly been the issue uh, at the top of the list at this conference for years now. And it'll continue to be as the media keeps changing. Yeah. Well, this is going to stop or the world ends. You know, that, which that, is the thesis. Which is, which is the possibility. <laughs> and it would make things a lot easier. We could just say, okay, that's done now. There you go. <laughs> but now we have a Megalodon. So oh, we do? We do, yeah. The the big hit movie going on right now is Meg, which is the, the, the giant Megalodon movie oh. about the undersea creature that so, is... So we don't really have no, a Megalodon. No, unfortunately, we don't really have a Megalodon. There haven't, we haven't yet found those uh, like mid-ocean ridges where the hot stuff and the monsters come out yet. Unfortunate. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah. What else? We have uh, um, an interesting... Uh, uh, what I'm hoping is going to become a trend. We're shifting here from politics to kind of the entertainment world. Uh, if it's okay, is this a good time to make that transition? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there was a, a actually a really interesting piece in um, in uh, the Hollywood Reporter that is t kind of taking stock on what's happening with women as directors. Uh, so we'll be shocked. You'll be shocked to hear. <laughs> We've actually talked about this before. Yeah, that yeah. Really, the, the, the media world's going to be a lot better when there are more women directing things. Wonder Woman made um, $412.5 million for Warner Brothers uh, under the direction of Patty Jenkins um, was something that made people go, well, okay, we can do this now. And, um, you know, truth be told, it's an industry that it has its, you know, as the Me Too movement has shown, uh, an enormously troubling patriarchal structure that um, can often make it very difficult for women to, to be in the director's seat or to be the person who's composing it. Um, but uh, but there is a wave of projects that are going on right now, as The Hollywood Reporter talks about it, um, where you've got people who are beginning to move in. So uh, just a little rundown of what they list here that's certainly worth paying attention to. Uh, a couple things that have already been shot. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, a film called The Sun is Also a Star. Um, which was directed by Rai Russo-Young and is based on a young adult novel of the same title. And Yara Shahidi is in it. And it's uh, about two teenagers who fall in love on the same day as the girl fights against her family deportation. Um, and it's going to be released in May of uh, 2019. Um, 
New Line Cinema has Andrea Berloff, who scripted and direct, she scripted and directed The Kitchen, based on the Vertigo comic book series created by Ollie Masters and Ming Doyle for DC. The story is set in the 70s, Hell's Kitchen, following three wives whose mobster husbands end up in prison. With no way to earn a living, they decide to continue their husband's illegal business. Um, there's going to be a Wonder Woman sequel, Wonder Woman 1984, that Patty Jenkins mm. will be directing with uh, Gal Gadot once again playing the lead character. Uh, this time around, Wonder Woman faces off against the villainous Cheetah, played by Kristen Wiig. Nice. That should be awesome. That should be cool. <laughs> because she's an amazingly talented, engaging yeah. performer. Um, so that'll be coming up. There's a couple other things that are in active development. A film called New Gods, which uh, Ava DuVernay, who's a hero status as far as directors are these days, both in fiction and nonfiction. Um, and uh, it's a Jack Kirby comic with screenwriter Caro Salem. Um, and there's no producers. It's a host of characters. Um uh, new Gods, Forever People, and Mr. Miracle. The New Gods came into existence after the world of the gods of classic mythology were destroyed during Ragnarok. The deities inhabit two planets. One is New Genesis, a lush paradise, and the other, Apocalypsis, a version of hell. And hmm. they are at war. It's kind of – that one I think is really interesting. It's a little bit reminiscent of the American gods um, um, novel by Neil Gaiman and uh, the the world that goes on there, which was, you know, sort of based on the idea that these gods have an existence as long as there's people who believe in them. So they're of course going to try to reassert themselves in that. So this sounds kind of similar to this. Um, and last one worth mentioning, uh, although maybe I, I don't know if you were a, a fan of this, but uh, did you see Suicide Squad? Was no, that, I didn't. Uh, I didn't either because it just didn't look. No. That looked like it was going to be a little too far. Yeah. But there is a... Um, I don't think it got good reviews either. Yeah, it really didn't, but a lot of people went to see it. In fact, it was always an interesting thing to talk to students about. So you saw the reviews, right? And they would say yes, and you would go. And what did the reviews say? They said, said it was a terrible movie. And did you go? Yeah, well, absolutely. I went with my friends to see it. And what did you think of the movie? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> so, and, and I have to say, ultimately, I don't believe in good and bad movies. I mean, I think you can pick what you want um, for, for any number of reasons, but there is a kind of spinoff project Project, uh, called Birds of Prey, which and the, the center of it is the Harley Quinn character, who is played by Margot Robbie, a uh, character spinoff. And uh, this film is going to be directed by Kathy Ann, who will become the first female Asian director hmm. uh, ever tapped to direct a superhero film. So um, so all of that is coming up. There's uh, another uh, Mimi Leader film um, uh, written by Kristen Hodson and uh, project is based on Birds of Prey, uh, which is Quinn and uh, the crime fighters Black Canary, Barbara Gordon, who is... Batgirl, right? Mm. And the Huntress. So all of that's happening. And then finally, and yeah, so there's, so these are all good signs that there are people who are, the, uh, the, the industry is beginning to maybe change a little bit so that it's going to be a little bit more recognized and, um, um, more the practices are changing, and uh, I'm I'm hopeful, and of course always a little bit pessimistic, because sometimes these changes are are a long time in coming. Yeah. So, but it's cool. I mean, we've already talked about sort of the beginning of this podcast, but one of our first episodes was talking over the the breaking news story of Matthew Weiner, and um, you know, being able to see what we hope is is positive movement from 
you know, what is it, what was inevitably an, a, a tragedy and being mm-hmm. able to see some movements is uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, I, I think it's, and, and of course it's well past the time when that should have happened. So it's really good to see, you know, right. that it's beginning to take yeah. root. And certainly don't want to claim victory quite yet, but. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, I think it's important to keep complaining and yeah. say, this is not a fair system. And, you know, truth be told, it's still, uh, generally speaking, going to be, uh, uh, more complex for people of color to get the opportunity as, you know, um, as the sure. industry tries to relearn how to be a little bit more just in terms of how they give opportunities to do these sorts of things. And the superhero thing, I mean, there's a lot of money involved in it. So it's kind of a very specialized category. It's one of the reasons I think, um, you know, looking in, in genres like horror where there's sometimes a lot less at stake, you can often see a lot more experimentation. But, you know, then again, a lot more old school kind of yeah. <laughs> ways of telling stories and who the stories are told about and things like that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I remain cautiously optimistic that these are good signs. Well, your upcoming fall, you are taking a sabbatical. I am. Yes, that is a true thing. What, what is be. your sabbatical project? Well, my sabbatical project is, of course, to continue this wonderful podcast yeah. because this is this is uh, this is what I live for. To have these <laughs> conversations with you, uh, but the at the center of it is uh, a book called Horror Media, ah. and the focus of the book is about how um, horror moves across different forms and actually moves between fiction and nonfiction because I think there's an there's a absolutely fascinating interface that's been happening in our culture with um, True crime television, yeah. true crime stories, uh, or you know the docudrama versions of those with the reconstructions and everything in them, um, and the amount of access we have to material that's actual real footage of things. Uh, it's kind of it's it's interesting because as I've started thinking about it, it's riddled with some of the same problems that the whole news cycle does. You know, if you've ever watched uh, a television program that's like a, a unscripted, as they call it, uh, paranormal activity kind of program, sure. right? And so, what usually happens? I know this is not your genre. <laughs> um, Although you are going to take your kids to see Meg, right? Because you do want to traumatize them about. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, uh, but they're they're you know kind of based on the suggestion of things that you don't actually see, kind of like evidence of UFOs right. or, or something like that. Um, but I think there's a really interesting interface going on in our culture between fiction and nonfiction. It's reaching across different media, from television to the internet to theatrical films and documentaries and everything else. Have you watched so, The Staircase yet on Netflix? I have not watched The Staircase yet. But I will. It's 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 Shit. as they say. It's on my list. It's on your list. It's yeah. on my list. What's currently consuming the attention of a of a fan of the whole horror arena for me right now is uh, a a new series that's on Hulu called Castle Rock. Okay. And Castle Rock would be it's it's a I think one way to think about it is it's a buffet for fans of Stephen King. Um, at the uh, and there is so much nerd stuff going on right now. Like there is a 10-minute video of two people who dissect the credit sequence <laughs> because the credit <laughs> sequence is a bunch of pages with underlined words and circles and and maps and diagrams. And it's all from different Stephen King things. Castle uh, Rock is one of the locations that uh, shows up in that part of Maine where a lot of his fiction is set. Gotcha. Um, the, and, and there are characters in it like Pangborn, who's one of the central characters in Castle Rock was also the central 
police figure in Needful Things. Um, and uh, and there's, a, there's actually a somebody who is distantly related to Jack Torrance. And her, actually her, I think she said her first name is like Barbara or something like that. But in order to annoy her parents who were embarrassed about the side of the family where the guy went into a ski lodge and killed his family, that she would actually call herself Jackie. So she goes under Jackie Torrance. Mm. So, so there's all these little bits and pieces of other parts of the world of Stephen King and the the center of the story is about is uh and I'm not going to I'm not going to do any spoilers but um there's a, a a kid who's been locked up in a prison for a very long time not because he was arrested or anything like that and he wasn't locked in a place where there were other prisoners the warden was just keeping him in a cage because the warden was convinced he was the devil and partially Jeez. responsible for all the horrible things happening in in Castle Rock so so are are you where do you fall on Stephen King? I think well, in in terms of the his writing or his popness or well, just, do you have a general opinion on how I, you feel about Stephen yeah, King? Yeah, I, I I think he's a brilliant writer. I think he's a um, he writes a lot. Yeah, uh, I always find because he makes his characters very like uh, kind of corrupted, like human beings are, and sometimes that can make you really uncomfortable. Um, but I think he's, I mean, I think he's been, um, uh, as influential in the last, you know, 25 years as Richard Matheson, another horror writer who was involved in the Twilight Zone and everything like that was the 25 years before that. Well, I mean, I, so, uh, do you remember we had Chuck Klosterman on campus? Yes. Like spring 20, uh, 2009, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Um, like one of the questions I asked him in a Q and A was sort of, you know, if you're going to give, if you're going to name an, an author who is going to be you know, timeless from sort of our current era, you know, who is it? And and the reason I was asking it was because I, I feel like it's harder and harder to be a a an a author who really really sticks out, who cuts through it. You know, who's the who's the Hemingway? of the of the 21st century or you know or of that we're, we're, we'll look back at in time and that was the answer that he came up with was stephen king's probably the one so mm-hmm. um you yeah know. I, I, I mean certainly there's a certain kind of like commercial sure his influence on the commercial world he also i mean when he writes nonfiction, he used to write a column for entertainment weekly that was uh, phenomenal um he's you know he's very blunt about his political points yeah. of view. He's got a couple books playing. on writing. He's done a couple books on writing that are really good. He did a, a book on the history of horror called Dance Macabre that's fantastic. Mm. Um, in fact, I was using it for a while as sort of like a reading guide, you know, for writers that I hadn't heard of or wasn't mm. as familiar with as I wanted to be. Um, and he he does it with this sort of like this you know, sort of this pleasure, this kind of happiness, this delight inside of it. And he's still, you know, a very powerful writer. He wrote a book called Joyland, which was really unusual for him. It was set at a uh, small amusement park where this character was working. Uh, But the time and the place to me were very recognizable. Back when little towns all over the place would have these, like, these... um, they, they, they were like little fun fairs with a few rides and stuff like that being run usually by teenagers who were kind yeah. of high. Yeah. 
<laughs> and you know they were pretty kind of da- da- dangerous places. In Adventureland, yeah, so yeah. Adventureland like or Santa's Village yeah. or Playland was the one that was yeah. near me. Um, and and in fact, I you know I was just not too long ago at Atlantic City, and their pier is covered with these kind of like slightly dangerous yeah. rides being run by teenagers, which was kind of creepy. But so Joyland was um, about a, a guy who was spending the summer working at one of those, and it was just really recognizable to me. Now later on in the book, when he starts seeing ghosts that not so much but uh, <laughs> but it did it did kind of traipse into that traditional uh, traditional territory um, and you know I always look for time to read more the 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 adaptations um, you know, there's been a lot of stuff made sure. for television and film um, but yeah I mean I think I, I think I'd agree with Klosterman I think he's I think he's gonna be um, around for a long time um, I, 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 also, I, I would also suggest that Margaret Atwood is in that category. Yeah. I think Margaret Atwood's work has become so enormously influential of late. Um, so, that, I mean, that's kind of an interesting question, you know, like yeah. who's, who's going to stand the test of time? Right, which is interesting because he ended up, I mean, he came out with a book a couple of years ago, Klosterman did. Um, it was called, like, What If We Were Wrong, you know? And, and um, basically the, the premise of the entire book is, you know, what if what we think now is going to be the most, you know, historical um, event doesn't even hit a history book? So one of his examples is, like, if we look back at 20th century music, you know, what, like, how... What what do we have that really defines that um, in a similar manner to to what defines classical music? You know, is the Beatles going to be what inevitably ends up um, you know as the as the go to uh, citation in history books, or is it going to be Elvis Presley, or is it going to be something completely different that we may not even um, think about? You know, and I can't remember what, who he said, but it was neither one of those. It was actually kind of an odd answer that he came up with. It wasn't Bob Dylan, was it? It wasn't Bob Dylan uh, either. Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. it that sings uh, Johnny Be Good? Oh, Chuck Berry. I think Chuck Berry was yeah. his answer. Yeah, that's, I, that's an interesting answer. It's an interesting thing to kind of think about, because there's also a, a notion in which some of the stuff is has kind of a disposability built into it. I mean, that's one of the things about popular culture is that it's it doesn't it doesn't seem to cry out for the you know the eternal value of what we used to call high culture, right? The the works of literature that everybody should read forever, right? We're always going to read Shakespeare. We're always going to right. listen to opera. We're always you know these things that are and and pop culture has this kind of self knowledge of its own disposability because it partly because it's seen as being more of a commercial than an aesthetic enterprise. That it's more about you know, building an audience and making money and then moving on to the next thing than necessarily, you know, something that you would build a culture on. But but this is a fairly recent development. We're in an interesting culture that doesn't really spend a lot of time investing in, you know, kind of high culture stuff, right? Depending on how you frame the argument. I mean, some people get very, you know, uh, um, stuck about, you know, oh, well, this this person is clearly going to, you know, this is an epic. It, 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 the, um, the, the Kendrick Lamar fans were sure. like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, quite convinced that that he is the second coming, right? Um, and and you know, it's always hard to predict what what's going to last and and what isn't, and what sort of uh, what, what sort of cultural resonance gives it value. Yeah, you know? and and how do you? cultivate cultural relevance from an artist's perspective over time you know how how is how do you take something um you know that's you know who's to say what we would think about of nirvana 
had Kurt Cobain never committed suicide. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. like what is the, what, what does the rest of the career look like? And do we still hold Nirvana, uh, and, and never mind and sort of think about that moment in 91, the same way that, mm-hmm. that we do now. Yeah. Yeah. Who's to say? No, it's interesting. It was like the, you know, the first time I saw this is America, Yeah, you know, it was just sort of like, it was a transfixing moment. And I remember when smells like teen spirit came out and it was, you know, I, I listened to it. There were I was I was actually running a high school radio station at the time nice. when it came out, and um, and it just like I was with a couple other students in the room, and they looked at me and they were like, "What is this?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, it's Nirvana because we'd play Bleach quite a bit, and, yeah, and uh, their sub pop stuff and everything like that." So it was it was interesting to see the effect it was having on people that you know, but yeah, it's always interesting. Like, is that a, is that a moment that? Um, yeah, you know, that's in its own context, or is it able to? Because if stuff's going to last, it has to be able to transcend that moment. Right. So out of so you know, for example, if we're you know, going back to Stephen King for a moment, um, Carrie, right, mm-hmm. which was his first novel, and was rejected by oh, I think everybody in the publishing industry until he, I mean, it had gotten rejected a lot, and he was going to throw it out, and um, um, somebody who cared much about him talked him into continuing to work with it, um, and. And Carrie has this like amazing. Uh, it, it was a product of its time, but it's lasted past it. So there have been three film versions of it. Uh, they did a version of Carrie. There's of been Carrie. Th- really? There's been three. I didn't know that. There was a musical. Wow. Uh, the musical recently showed up as a, a plot device on the show Riverdale, wow. <laughs> where they right. did the the Carrie musical. Uh, Carrie's become an icon for the the LGBTQ community, mm. um, and it's 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 a very you know powerful story. So, you know uh, that seems to be one of those things that that uh, you know if there's a if there's a moment in Stephen King that seems to have that kind of cultural. Uh, um, impact. I, I suppose that would be one that one could argue for. But you know, he's still writing, so yeah. you know, there's it, it still may may happen, and you know, there'll be there'll continue to be adaptations of his material. I did hear a rumor that they're going to try to remake Creepshow, hmm. which was based on stories that he had worked on in kind of a pulp form that George Romero had directed quite a few years ago. So maybe, I mean, you know. Anybody else stick out to you in terms of who's who you think is going to have that kind of cultural impact over the long term? They're just not going to go away. <laughs> um, from a film perspective, I have a feeling Tom Hanks is that person. Huh, um, interesting. I, I I think that there's just a a level of affection for Tom Hanks that um, will continue yeah. uh, to go. I'm trying to think. Um, Gosh, it's hard. I mean, there, there's also answers that, you know, I, I, I have second thoughts of now. Just as as of late, news like Woody Allen's like someone you know who, mm-hmm. you know, I, I might, might have put up there at some point, which I don't. You know, I, I'm afraid to say now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some problematic. Uh, that was not a sentence that came <laughs> out right. Let me try that again. Uh, problematic aspects yeah. of that too. Yeah. That's interesting. I did have one other little bit of information, and you probably know that you're a Netflix person, right? Yeah. I didn't know until uh, two days ago that Netflix has game shows on. What? They have game shows on Netflix, like Family Feud. You can watch Family Feud on Netflix. Which is just like awesome. Vintage. Vin- well, this the, the one that uh, the one that I heard. I wasn't watching it. I was listening to somebody else who was watching it. But it was a uh, celebrity family feud with uh, Chris Kattan and some country star. I don't remember who it was. So it was their families, mm. you know, doing it for charity or whatever. But uh, Do you yeah, know who is the host? 
Steve Harvey. Okay, so, so this, yeah, this, this is from the recent, recent season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so there's uh, there's Jeopardy apparently is floating around. Oh, that'd in there. be fantastic. So, I would love. So, um, did you had, do you follow Jeopardy at all, or has that ever been like a, a part of your daily diet? It, well, I'll tell you what, me and uh, my lovely wife and um, Alexa have, <laughs> yeah, have yeah, a little so waltz with Jeopardy <laughs> every evening. Yeah. Um, so I can't. When was it that? There was a, there was a really famous streak that like Ken Jennings went on on Jeopardy. Um, I want to say it was like two thousand three, maybe two thousand four. Let's look it up real quick, just so we can we can do this because it's uh, that that's part of the digital wonderfulness is that you can do that. So. Seventy four games. Uh huh. Let's see when the. Uh, yeah, the streak in 2004. Ended. Yep, 2004. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It crossed a couple seasons, uh-huh. um, but so so I had grown up in a household which my dad was a huge Jeopardy fan, you know, and we watched it, but we you know we never watched it regularly, but we did watch the Ken Jennings streak almost all the way through. I think after he had made it to about two weeks, we watched the rest of it. Uh-huh. Um, and Ken Jennings is a First, a hilarious person to follow on Twitter, and I would I would highly highly recommend it. Uh-huh. Um, he's just really really funny, but he's written some really interesting trivia books as well. So, um, but I but I would love to rewatch sort of the the Ken Jennings streak <laughs> on Jeopardy. Now it turned out he ended up doing um, so so the way the way that he was able to get his streak was there used to be a rule that on Jeopardy um, you maxed out at ten days. So uh-huh. so two weeks was really the top that he could get. Well, they ended up getting rid of this rule, and I want to say within a year of of eliminating this rule is when Ken Jennings really hits his hot streak. Uh-huh. Um, and he ended up going on to um to to do some some other things afterwards. Like he he was in the uh, the ultimate tournament of champions. Uh, which brought back, you know, some of the people that had had had, had clocked out at that two weeks before, and he actually ended up getting second place. So, uh, so I don't think he, he he would necessarily be called the, you know, the the best um, the best Jeopardy player of all time. And then he lost to Watson from IBM as well. So uh, okay. Um, so, but um, I think Brad Rutter was the guy who who beat him in the in the in the the champion uh, tournament. So, but anyway, anyways, all to say, it's a very cool pop culture moment. Was a uh, Ken Jennings streak. <laughs> he he dominated so he, fast on yeah, trigger. He's yeah. really really good. Yeah, that's, clean it's, house. Yeah, it's kind of kind of scary how good some of these people are at that level of trivia. I, yeah. I'm not because my uh, brain is becoming a sieve. Yeah, but. he might he might be. I should probably look this fact up too. He he. It's possible that he's won more money on game shows than anybody else. <laughs> um, uh, true story. Let's see. Oh, former now. Okay, so now he's second all-time game show winning leader, uh, but one at one point in time he was number one. So, so there you go. He's I mean he's appeared. I think he he was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and I believe he didn't win Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but he walked out on the Million Dollar Question. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's played all kinds of game shows on there. So, um, yeah, you should uh, you should look up Ken Jennings for yeah. some game show. That's interesting. I have to make one actual correction on what I said. <laughs> Oh, go go ahead. It's Hulu. It's not Netflix. Oh, that's it's Hulu, why. right? That's yeah. That would be that okay. would be why. Net, Netflix has really been more in the like Great British Bake Off kind of you know those competitive yes, which shows. Which I have been watching. Mm-hmm. I've been watching that on PBS, but the the Bake Off. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. It really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you might have tipped me off on it on um, just the level of seriousness that goes into it. Where like if you watch competitive 
food shows on Food Network. It's all kind of it's kind of kitschy, you know. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of humor and a little bit of laughter to it, and uh, a lot of shows revolve around people who can't cook. But uh, the Great <laughs> British Bake Off is like the most serious food show I've ever watched in my life. It's there's an intensity to it, but there's also this like camaraderie among the contestants. Yeah. That and they're not even I mean they so they don't end up being contestants. They're sort of people who have, you know, a set of skills based on their own background. And watching the way that they support each other is really kind of inspiring. Yeah. Um, which also is, also the level of bluntness they have when they know <laughs> they've had a really terrible yeah. showing uh, that that weekend. Yeah. I mean they're just like they're just ready to sort of uh, come after themselves if 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 their judging was poor. Yeah, I, and and I also love the um, it's sort of like the you know because television can communicate a certain visual sense of what food is. Yeah. But then like the quality of the the food itself, right? Yeah. The mouthfeel, the taste, and all of that that has to come through the judges. Right. And they are they also have oh occasional brutality. Yeah. Going on. This has yeah. no like this has no flavor. Like right. somebody likes you you make somebody food and they go this has no flavor. Yeah. It's devastating. <laughs> yeah. Like a like a positive comment is them going like not half bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about or, bad? Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want any more. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is good. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with this. It's hilarious. Okay. All right. We've gone we've gone on longer than than uh than, than we scheduled to do ourselves. Before, we have. So. Well, we will we will also make sure we'll make sure that links to the uh, C-SPAN programs are available on the website. But and thank you for listening. All right. Once again. Join us next time on Media and the End of the World. 